All right. Man, I am so glad that you are here. Uh, what is it, like seven below out there, and you are the durable. You are the rugged. And in, online, I'm going to tease you, but I'm super glad you're here. Super glad you're here. Hey, if you have a Bible on your phone or in your hands or whatever, go to Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. And um, man, I'm glad you're here. If you're new to Summit Church, and at the end of this gathering, you find yourself having any questions at all, like how do I get on the phone app, what are my next steps, how do I connect, or, or what is with you people? You can ask any, anything. You can go to the red tent in the lobby, and there'll be someone there to talk with you and give you a gift. So thanks for being with us. Uh, there's some football going on right now that the Denver Broncos don't get to participate in for, what is this, the seventh year in a row? If you're looking for a team to root for, uh, I recommend the Cowboys uh, because, you're, because you're used to disappointment. Uh, I tell my single friends, if you want to date somebody that's low maintenance, date a Cowboy fan because they're used to sticking with a loser and they do not expect a ring. Uh, <laughs> I can't help but cheer for them though. Hey, uh, I'm going from silliness to seriousness. I felt uh, prompted during our last song of worship to uh, give you an opportunity to pray together for anything that might be going on in your world. So what I specifically felt is people who have diagnoses, people who are going through very challenging recoveries, people who are facing challenges in relationships or whatever. Like if you are really in a fight, uh, and you would like to just have God move in your life, then I'm going to invite you to do a simple thing, and that is just stand to your feet. And then I'm going to pray, and we're going to believe that your standing is a declaration of your heart to God and that he'll move among us. If you're online, I would encourage you to open your hands or to stand even where you are. And let's take a moment and just ask God to meet us at our points of pain, okay? So if, you're, if you need prayer in your life, I'm going to invite you now to be courageous and just stand. And, uh, and I'm going to pray. And if those of you who are remaining seated, like things are going great in your world, look around you, pick out somebody who's standing, and just start to pray for them. You don't even need to know their name or what's going on, but uh, pray for somebody who's standing if you're seated. All right? Let's go to the Lord together. Father, we're so grateful that we can call on you like this, that where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. So we know you're in the room. We know you're in this place, and we know that you know all of our needs at the deepest level even better than we do. And we ask you in the name of Jesus, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to do something powerful in everyone's life who's standing right now. I pray that starting today and in this coming week that there will be a demonstrated presence of God changes. Lord, healing or strength or revelation or wisdom, or guidance, or provision. But Lord, show yourself powerful on behalf of those of us who are standing and saying, Lord, we need you, and we're waiting on you, and we're looking to you. Be our strength, and be our healer, and be our deliverer, we pray. And so, Lord, we ask you to demonstrate your power among us, not just so that our needs are met and our pain is lessened, but so that the glory of God is revealed by our journey through our pain. So God, do a great thing among us, we pray. We give you thanks for it in advance, and we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected King. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. 
So we're in this restoration journey, and uh, if you missed last week, I'm going to really encourage you to go back and listen to it on the podcast or watch it, because we introduced the framework of this Nehemiah approach. Nehemiah, it turns out, is not just a documented history of the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls and gates and the restoration of that city, but it's also a framework for how God, by His Holy Spirit and through the body of Christ, helps us to rebuild our lives as well. And so uh, the name Nehemiah, his name means consoling breath of God, and he is a perfect picture of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit approaches our pain, our brokenness, and our restoration. So this is just such a wonderful thing to process with God. And so today we're going to go high speed. Uh, we're going to kick this into, uh, into high gear. So um, uh, if you have questions or whatever, you can email or reach out. Uh, but let's get going, okay? Let's, let's dive into this. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 20. And then I'm also going to read for you Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And uh, then we're going to dive in to this really important conversation as to uh, some critical things we need to understand in the restoration process God has for our lives, okay? So Nehemiah 2, we're doing verse 11 to 20. And then I'll flip over to Hebrews 4 and do verses 14 to 16. Uh, it is our custom to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're willing and able to do so. I know you've been doing calisthenics this morning. Thank you for your patience there. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I sat out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what, God, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley, gate, uh, went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And that is our mantra today. I hope that rises in your heart. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim of historic right to it. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Did I get that right? Hebrews 4, there it is. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is the word of God. You can be seated. Thank you so much. 
So the Holy Spirit goes on a, uh, a recon tour to go in at night. He brings a few with him. We don't know who they are. But he goes at night to explore the damage and the, the extent of the brokenness and the embarrassment and the humiliation uh, in uh, Jerusalem. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. It's really important that we lean into. Last week we prayed, and I hope you've been praying. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to know you. Help me to lean into and partner with what you're doing in my life. And uh, the thing I want you to hear just as we start this conversation is that God is, is on the job. This is our big idea today. God is on the job, and he's bringing a team with him. God is on the job, and he's bringing a team with him. And what he does right off the bat is he just explores the damage. God explores the brokenness that is in Jerusalem. And this is really important for you to understand because many of us think we can and we try to hide from God the really ugly parts of who we are. Isn't it interesting that when you approach God, you have this impulse like, I need to be good. I need to approach God as a worthy person. I need to do my best. And whenever you're struggling or floundering or hurting, it's really hard to approach God, and you have this impulse to hide from Him. And what you need to understand is God is more intimately acquainted with all of your brokenness and all the debris even than you are. So you're never going to confess something to God where He goes, what? No way, right? Because He, this man, I love this about God. While you sleep, the Holy Spirit hovers over your life. He is, he is weaving together ways to rebuild you. Man, God is in the restoring business. He's on the job, and he's brought a team with him. We're going to talk about that team as we go today. But let's just talk about this exploration journey because this is really interesting. What I find in the Scriptures is there's rarely a word or a location or a thing that is mentioned that isn't significant for some reason. And it says that Nehemiah, on his tour at night of the damage, he goes to five geographical spots. First, he goes through the valley gate. And these are really interesting. I don't have time to do a deep dive on this, but if you want a super cool study to do on your own at what God is doing in your life, these five geographical locations are pretty amazing. The valley gate, the, the Jerusalem has several gates, and there are three valleys that converge through Jerusalem. And this is the valley gate that goes out to the valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is, in fact, if you go out that gate, uh, we're talking about the old city of Jerusalem, which was surrounded by walls. Uh, outside that gate is a slope, and it goes right down into the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is where they used to worship the false god Moloch and where actual human sacrifices were made. It is actually where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount starts talking about heaven and hell, and he points. You can just see him point toward the Valley of Hinnom as he describes hell because it was a picture of that. Uh, it's an awful place. It's a place of death. It is also a place where all the debris in the tr city trash was taken. And so it's just the place to just take all the ugliness. And uh, the Holy Spirit starts right there. And, and I would venture to say in your own journey of restoration, he's going to start right there with you, with what gods are you worshiping? Where are you trusting that you shouldn't be trusting? Uh, what kind of devotion do you have to uh, where are you looking for rescue other than God? Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this access of garbage in your life. So he, he does the valley gate. Uh, and then he, he does the, uh, the jackal's well. Now, this is interesting because the jackal's well has never been found. Nobody's sure where it was. 
but because of the path he's walking and describing, they know where it was, where it should be. And there's no well there. There really was never a well there. The theory is that there was an earthquake and water would run along rock under the ground and actually bubble up right there. And it's called the jackal's well because these jackals uh, are wild dogs. If you go to Jerusalem now, I'm told that they still have a wild dog problem. And these jackals, these wild dogs would hang out out there. Why? Because they ate carcasses of animals and remains. And so they lived right in there through the Valley of Hinnom. And so you had these uh, jackals, these devourers. Then they go to the dung gate, the dung gate. The dung gate is the gate where all the debris of the city would be walked out to the dump. It's the path to the landfill down in the Valley of Hinnom. And uh, it's where all your dung, I, I got lots of words I would like to use right here, but I'm trying to be sensitive. Sometimes I get uh, corrected for the carelessness of my vocabulary. Uh, but man, let's just tell the truth, shame the devil. God wants to help you load up all your dung and get it out of there. And he's searching that. He's, he knows what that is. Again, you don't have to hide it from him. You don't have to pretend you don't have any. You know, you don't have to pretend that, that you're perfect because he is more acquainted with your debris than you are. And he's in the redemption. He's on, he's on the job. So this is really the difference between religion and a relationship with God. Religion says, oh, no, I fell again. I better not tell God. Relationship says, oh, no, I fell again. I better run to God. And God wants you to run to him. And too many of us are hiding from him. We're holding back. Listen, there's nothing you can confess to God that will shock him or surprise him. And he's on the edge of his seat waiting for you to do it because confession is a pathway to healing. And so this is a really important part of your process. Then he goes to... Um, the fountain gate, and the fountain gate is where water would be brought into the city. There was water uh, accessible nearby, and they would transport water into the city, and that's how they got their water supply. Now, in the Old Testament, you see where they would capture cities, and they would besiege the city. What they would do is they would, uh, they would surround the city walls so that nobody was brave enough to go outside, and they would just wait till you starved out or watered out because you couldn't go out the fountain gate and get more water. And you couldn't leave and get more food. And so they would just starve you out until you were begging to be captured. And that's what besieging the city was like. Well, uh, that's the fountain gate where water's brought in. And, and the next thing is the king's pool. This is the last geographic location. And the king's pool was actually an invention, an aqueduct created by King Hezekiah when he ruled there, where to stop the besieging being able to dry, to dry them out, he created an aqueduct that came into the city uh, inside the walls and created the king's pool where you could access water in town now because he had dug this aqueduct. And so that's the king's pool. And of course, this points to us of the abundant living water of God. Man, we need the presence of God. This is Jesus stands at the feast and he says, uh, hey, is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. Out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Uh, this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, which had not been given yet because he had not been glorified. And so God has a desire for you to have living water, the king's pool in your heart. And so, man, there's a lot right there just in this uh, exploration of how you got where you are, who your enemies are, uh, time to carry out some garbage, time to go through the valley gate, time to let the king's pool res uh, resource you and renew you. Water is such a powerful image throughout the entire Bible. 
And when you get to Revelation, it says when we get to heaven, there will be from the throne, from God's throne will flow a river right through the center of the city of God whose water will be for the healing of the nations. Man, God wants to resource you. So there's deep stuff right there. And uh, I want to just point out one last thing that he said, I had, I had few men with me. And then he says, uh, I haven't told anybody yet, uh, the rulers, the priests, the leaders. And he says it this way, those who would be doing the work. This is a really important part of your spiritual formation is to understand this. The Holy Spirit is going to bring you power. He is going to bring you uh, protection. He's going to bring you resources. He is going to protect you from enemies and you're going to do the work, okay? This is something we all hope. We just want to sit in our chair, pray to God, and hope he fixes us. And that is rarely the case. Because if God fixed you, you would never really understand what actually was broken. And you'll just go out like a dog returning to its vomit and recreate the same problem. So what God wants to do is resource you, guide you, give you revelation, give you wisdom from God, give you resources from God, thump your enemies in the head, but you will do the work or the work won't be done. And so the beauty of this is we'll do the work together. And so uh, today I'm going to give you two lies from the enemy, two truths you need to lean into, and then three obstacles between you and the redeeming work of God. Um, you'll, you'll learn over time. I have movie quotes flying through my head all the time. Uh, there are times where my family sits around and we only communicate in movie quotes. Uh, it's really fun. You ought to try it sometime. Uh, obstacles comes from a movie. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out three obstacles that uh, stand between you and this work that God wants to do in you. So first, two lies. He introduces us to two guys, three actually in this point, but Sanballat and Tobiah are the two leading enemies uh, of this great work of restoration. They are, again, a perfect demonstration of the strategies and tactics of our enemy, and they will demonstrate over and over and over again the strategies that the devil uses to take you out of your restoration. And so uh, here they start with two lies, okay? The first lie is, if you get well, it is rebellion against the king. So that's the first thing they say. Are you rebelling against the king? And uh, the, the accusation they're going to make all the way up uh, to the king is they are rebuilding the city so that they can rebel against you and be fortified where you can't rule them anymore. And so here's something that happens to us when we go in our restoration process. First of all, when you start to lean into God and say, Lord, I need you to heal me. Lord, I need to understand what I've been through. I need you to redeem my pain. I need you to restore what's going on. There's a voice inside of you that accuses you of rebelling against God. Why are you focusing on yourself? You're not supposed to be focusing on yourself. And why do you think you should be healthy and happy and holy and whole? Wouldn't it be more glorifying to God if you just groveled in the dirt like a worm and kept confessing how miserable you are? Wouldn't that be honoring God more? And so you can, a lot of people are afraid to get well because they actually think they're supposed to stay not well. And uh, the first accusation is you're rebelling against God. Here's the thing I like to say. There comes points in your life where it needs to be all about you so that you can get well, and then it doesn't have to be about you at all. We know that God calls us to live our lives for him, where he can live through us for others. But there are times when the damage is so great that you need to hit a pause and you need to make it all about you for just a little while so God can heal you and strengthen you so that then it can be all about others. This is not rebellion. This is not selfishness. Uh, there's a great book I'll probably mention to you dozens of times. 
Uh, it's called Failure of Nerve. Outside of the Bible, it's my second favorite book. And it talks about uh, cultures that are anxiety-ridden, family systems that are anxiety-ridden, and how leaders are attacked as selfish. And so leadership gets undermined, and uh, this is what happens in your life. As you start to get well, as you start to grow, you'll hear a, you'll hear a sense, you'll have a gnawing sense, is this okay for me to get well, for me to be whole? Is it okay to grow out of this? The second accusation is that you are really unfixable. Uh, they said, what is this you're doing? It says there, in fact, that they, uh, that, uh, that they, let me find the word, here we go. They mocked and ridiculed us. Later on, they're going to say, hey, if even a fox, might have even been earlier in chapter 2. They say, if a fox were to jump on this wall you rebuilt, it would knock it down. And so... Uh, the second lie is you're beyond repair. This is never going to work. You might as well settle in. You're going to be a broken, hot mess for the rest of your life. And even if you think you're getting well, even if you think you're becoming whole, even if a fox was to walk on your wall, it would knock it down. So these are two lies that are really important that you not inhale them, that you reject these lies. And that leads us to two critical truths that Nehemiah gives us uh, here and forward that will help us to fight these lies. The first truth I want you to understand comes down here uh, in verse 20. Uh, verse 20. And that, that is this. This is a really critical truth. The enemy has no place in your life unless you give it to him. This is really important to understand. I hear Christians talk about, can Christians be demon-possessed? Can Christians be oppressed by the devil? It's really important that you understand this. The enemy has no rightful place in your life unless you give it to him. And so this is, again, a part of you taking on the work and doing the work. He has no right place. And this is how Sambalat says to him, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Uh, one version, I think it's King James, says you have no part or portion. You have no part or portion. This is something I say to the enemy all the time. When I sense that he's fighting me, giving me uh, distracting, despairing, discouraging uh, information, putting me in tough situations, I just remind him, listen, I'm a, son, I'm a blood-bought son or daughter of the living God. You have no part or portion in my life unless I give it to you. Now, here's the thing. We give it to him. and We give it to him in lots of ways. There's a really cool uh, notion that your life... Uh, yourself is like a grid. It's like a, it's like a map of terrain. And sometimes we surrender a piece of ground to the enemy by being willfully disobedient to God. Now, the most primary thing I have observed in my years of life is bitterness and unforgiveness. So when God calls you to forgive someone and you refuse to do it, when you uh, root into bitterness in an area of your life, that is a piece of territory that you have now given the enemy rightful domain because it's a place of rebellion in your soul against God. And uh, from that place, that place of uh, terrain, he will launch attacks into more of your life, which can turn out to look like lust, can turn out to look like rages of anger, can look like uh, incapacity with relationships. Um, so uh, here's the deal. You just got to really cling to this. The enemy has no rightful place in your life unless you surrender it to him. 
And this is why a big part of your recovery is going to be taking back ground that you had surrendered through your disobedience. And this, again, is that journey of the Holy Spirit walking through your life as he's going through the dung gate and the valley gate, and he's going through the fountain gate, and he's going through the king's pool, and he's resourcing you, pointing out this is, this is something that requires the Holy Spirit's revelation to you and then your, create, your courageous response to it. So that first truth you need to understand is that if the enemy's kicking your butt, it's because there's some ground you have surrendered to him that he does not have a right to unless you give him the right. Okay, uh, uh, man, we could talk about this for a long time. It's an important thing to understand. Uh, the second thing I want you to see, the second truth, is that restoration requires community. And this is really what I want you to anchor in on for the rest of this conversation. Restoration requires community. It's fascinating to me that God exists in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet he is one God. He has community within himself. Nehemiah brings people with him. He takes a few men with him on this damage inspection tour. He is going to start built, putting people together into teams. If you read chapter 3, chapter 3 is just a long list of names, people who are working side by side and working together. Uh, the point of this whole thing is that restoration requires community. You will not go off in your room all by yourself and participate entirely in the restoration process God has for you and then come out a restored person because this requires relationship. This requires brothers and sisters in Christ who have, who have access to your life and you to theirs, and there is a partnership that goes on. This is why the Bible says, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Is God with you when you're alone? He absolutely is. Will God hear your prayers when you're alone? Yes, he will. But there's something he distinguished by saying, when two or three of you are together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. If any two, of you, two or three of you touch something and agree together on it, God's going to do something even more powerful. So it's really important that you embrace the reality that restoration cannot be fully accomplished alone. So this is really important. My good friend Chuck Secker says, this means that your deliverance, your renewal, your restoration is directly proportional to the amount of relational conflict that you're willing to navigate through. This is why the enemy's tactic is to divide and conquer, to isolate you. What the devil wants to constantly do is make you believe you're the only one on planet earth like you. You're all alone. Nobody's with you. His goal is despair. He does this with churches. He does this with marriages. He does this with families. He does it with friends. He tries to divide and conquer so that you're all alone. Think about the animal world where there's predator and prey. Predators look for the animals that are wounded, have been left from the pack. They're on their own. They're the easiest ones to kill. And so the enemy wants to do this to you. He wants to get you to refuse community, reject community, not live in community, not have meaningful relationships in faith. He wants you to be all by yourself. And his ultimate goal is to get you so isolated and so full of despair that you loathe life itself and you consider suicide. That is his ultimate goal, and that is his ultimate victory, is that someone would take their own life because they feel that alone. These are lies, and we must overcome them with the truth, with the power of God, and we must participate in the work. Okay? So two lies, two truths. Let's talk about the three obstacles between you and where God wants to get you, which is to say three obstacles between you and community. You're going to hear us talk a lot at Summit Church about community because we believe with everything in us 
that gathering like this together habitually, faithfully to worship God together is a big part of our discipleship, our spiritual formation. And a bigger part is to go from rows to circles where we look each other in the eye and we talk about what God is doing in our lives and we grow in our faith together. And even more powerful than that is sitting at a table for one or two or three and you're talking about your journey of faith and really getting down and dirty with how God is wanting to do things in your life, fighting for each other, with each other. These are critical I, again, will say it one more time. Your restoration is not fully possible without it. So let's talk about the three obstacles to community that might be a barrier uh, to you. The first is uh, a refusal to submit. Man, we are proud, proud people. And the Scriptures call us, Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so uh, if you have a refusal to submit your life, now I want to help you with the word submit because this is a dangerous word and people abuse this word and it gets misunderstood. The word submit literally means to put in military array, like a military parade. So when you're all by yourself, you are out of array. You're not, you're militarily alone. But when you're in proper relationship with community, mutually submitted one to another, you are now in military array and the armies of the enemy have a hard time defeating you because you are not standing alone. Ecclesiastes talks about uh, two is better than one. And if one is cold, two can be stay warm together. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Like we have to have this and uh, you might miss it because of your refusal to submit. And so if you refuse to get in line and mutually submit to one another in a community, a community as small as three or as many as 15 or 20 and as many as several hundred in your church, we have to have levels where we are in proper military array so that we are unstoppable by our enemy together. No one stands alone. Standing alone is the certainty of being shot. So we need to stand together. So the first obstacle is your refusal to submit. The second is fierce independence, which is a, you know, the redheaded stepchild of a refusal to submit. Uh, a, a, just a fierce independence. I am my own person. Nobody tells me what to do. How dare you uh, think that your opinion should have some weight in my life? Uh, we have this fierce independence. It is the American way. We are a nation, you, when you, uh, this, this is fascinating all by itself to think about this, follow something to its original fertilization, and that'll, dis, that'll define all the fruit that's on the tree. And what was the fertilization of America? We were born in rebellion to a government that offered us taxation without representation, and the birth of this nation was a rebellion. It was an independence. We will be free people, and there's beauty there, and there's also blind spots there. And then you get to the mountain west, you get from the mountains all the way to the west coast, and we are fiercely independent. And so this fierce independence will hinder you from having the community life that God dreams for you. And if you don't have the community life that God dreams for you, you will lack the restoration. There'll be gaps in your restoration that don't occur because you're living it all alone. You weren't made for fierce independence, you were made for interdependence. You were not made for codependence. You were not made to depend on each other. You were made for interdependence. That is, you and I 
depending on God together with each other. We're interdependent as a community, but I don't depend on you and you don't depend on me. We interdepend on each other with God. So it doesn't become a dysfunctional, uh, I have authority over your life and I told you you shouldn't marry that girl, so you need to end that relationship or you shouldn't spend your money that way because I, as your community, are telling you that, that that's a bad decision. You know, no, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about interdependence on one another, mutually submitted to one another, submitted to God. And so you got to get break through your fierce independence. The last one is a fear of vulnerability. It is terrifying to be exposed. It's terrifying to be fully known. It is the cry of every human heart. I want to be fully known and fully loved, but we are terrified to be fully known. Adam and Eve in the garden, the first sin enters the world. And what is their first impulse? To cover their bodies and hide in the trees. I was afraid because I was exposed. So I hid. And we've been doing it ever since. And so this fear of vulnerability will stop you from experiencing the transforming power of God. Is it possible that people you are vulnerable to will hurt you? Yes. In fact, it's beyond possible. It's probably a certainty. Do it anyway. Is it possible that people will take your vulnerability and use it against you? Yes. I pray to God in the body of Christ that that not be the case. Shame on us as people of God who would use people's woundedness against them who would use their, you know, uh, again, my friend Chuck says, you need friends who know everything about you and they love you anyway. They still believe in you. Vulnerability. Listen, if I'm too afraid to be known by someone, then I am not capable of being loved by them. Love is artificial if the relationship's artificial. If you don't know me, then you saying you love me is really not strong because you don't know me. You love what you know, but we all have this fear. Well, if you knew the rest, you wouldn't love me. This is the beauty of a marriage. Naked without shame. This should be the definition of every marriage, that we are fully exposed to one another without shame. Man, when a marriage is doing that, it's, it's powerful. But we hide from each other, even our spouses. We hide from our best friends, you know. There was a big accountability partner move years ago, and you need an accountability partner. Well, I found out that if a guy will lie to his wife, he'll lie to his accountability partner. So we got to break through this fear of vulnerability. You're only as sick as your secrets. So you have to let the secret out. This is terrifying. I want to finish by reading you 1 John chapter 4. This is verse 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he, was given, he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. Friends, uh, Jesus told the disciples, it is by your love for one another that the world will know that you're my disciples. So we got to have community, man. We have, listen, your restoration process will not ever complete alone. We love to go in the secret place. Even when you think about 
the Catholic practice of confessing to a priest in a dark room who has vowed before God to never tell anyone what you just told him. That's better than nothing. You go get a counselor and you can tell that counselor things that they are, they are bound by law not to tell anyone else. That's better than nothing. But how much better to walk in vulnerability and community with other brothers and sisters who say, me too. And then we practice James chapter one, I think it is, or two. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. How much healing are we losing because we won't be vulnerable with each other? Now we could do a whole nother conversation about the wisdom with uh, the wisdom of vulnerability and not just being vulnerable with every stranger you ever meet. But you're not stupid. I don't think you are. You don't look stupid to me. So here's the response today. Number one, I've been praying that you will make a commitment to pursue community. That if you don't have it already, that you'll put it on your radar, you'll ask God to help you, and you'll find your way patiently with divine help into your community. So first is is a commitment. I need community in my life. If I don't have it, I'm going to make a commitment And perhaps it'll take a quarter of the year. It's not a race, but it's a relentless pursuit. I commit myself to Christian community. Second response is always about your oikos. If you're new here, oikos is the Greek term in the New Testament that means extended household. It means these people who are trafficking in your life. There are eight to 15 people whom God is supernaturally and strategically bringing right into your life. They have a front row view to you and they don't know Jesus. And God brings them into your path so that you can help them see Jesus, to feel the love of God. And so we talk about your oikos all the time. This is your primary mission on earth, is to serve the people God is bringing right in front of you and help them find Jesus. And so your second response is, someone in your oikos right now is alone. And your second response is to pray about the people that God has put right in front of your life Who's standing alone right now and offer them community? A lunch, a breakfast, a cup of coffee, a visit to your home, a conversation. Can you imagine a world where nobody stands alone, where every human being has a community that mutually submits to one another out of reverence for Christ and uh, accepts the mission to participate in the restoring work of God in each other's lives? Holy cow, man. I think, I think the vast majority of our emotional issues would disappear. This is so important. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. And then they're going to lead us in a song for you to sing, to worship, and to respond. So uh, on either side of the room, there are stands that say prayer, and they'll light those up in a second. There'll be a prayer volunteer uh, standing there ready to pray for you. If this has ignited something in your heart or, there, or you came in with something you want to pray with someone about, they are there, they are ready, they're prepared, they want to pray with you. You can be as transparent as you are comfortable being. They will take your needs to God with you. There are communion elements over there as well. So you can go over and take communion. You could break the bread and drink the cup and celebrate the Lord's resurrection in your life and worship Him there. Or you can stay right where you are and and sing and uh, give your heart to the Lord 
as you process this response that we're calling you to. All right? Let me pray for you. And then we'll sing this song together. You can pray. You can take communion. And then after this song, I'll come back and send you out with a blessing. Father, I'm so grateful. Man, am I grateful. I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit who moves in the dark places of my soul and is intimately acquainted with all the debris, all the, all the brokenness, all the brokenness I created in my own soul and all the brokenness that people brought to me. You know it all. And so I can confess to you without fear or shame because you already know it and you want to heal it. Would you give us the courage to trust you? Lord, I thank you for the people that you have brought in my life over the last 40 years of being a Christian. You have brought people into my life who have been community for me and me for them. And what a difference it has made. And I pray for our church family, for those watching online, those in the room. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a radical commitment to Christian community. That we will not rest without it, that we'll trust you to guide us into it and to, for us to be faithful participants in it. And Lord, we pray for our oikos right now. We ask you, Lord, to bring to us to mind a face or a name of someone you've brought in our life who right now is all alone and they are easy pickings for the enemy. Would you give us a person and then give us wisdom and intention to reach out to them and offer them community. Lord, be glorified as we give our hearts to you. Meet us in this moment. Anchor down what you're doing in our hearts and have your way in us, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.